Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. This is episode 100 with Dr. Steven Seiler. I'm your host, Chris Case, and I'm sitting here with my co-host, my Fast Labs partner, with the creator of the Fast Talk podcast, Coach Connor. Trevor, I must ask, how does it feel to have recorded and broadcast to the world 100 episodes of this show? Really exciting. Actually, I did the math the other night up until about 10 episodes when Jana joined us. Mm -hmm. I was spending about 15 hours editing each episode, (laughs) and I just did the math of how much time that adds up to. That's a lot. We've been spending a lot of time on this show. Years and years and years. Did you ever imagine we would get to 100 from based on those moments, first moments when you were recording with a little recorder in a empty room with echoes and a different co-host? We, at the very beginning, yeah, it was that, sitting there with an H4N in a room going, hey, these high ceilings and wood walls make great acoustics with this thing sitting in the middle of the floor trying to record. I think we got six episodes done. It took me a month to edit half of the first episode. I didn't think we were getting past those first six. Well, I didn't join until episode 32, and I was very green at that point, too. I don't know that I said more than a a few words in some of those first episodes. You, on the other hand, you were a bit more dialed, shall we say. That being said... Since that time, we've come a seriously long way. We've had some of the most amazing guests on this show. Yeah, I look back. It's kind of funny. We wrote up a, here's the concept of the show, and I think pretty much everything that we planned before episode one has been thrown out. Uh, I would say the biggest change, the most exciting part, is the guests that we got in. When we started, we were just splicing in old interviews that we did for Velo News articles, trying to get some some other voices in there. Now, I think one of the most exciting things about this show is the caliber of guests that we keep bringing in. I can't tell you how often we record a show and I was like, wow, did we just spend two hours talking with that person? Mm-hmm. The one thing that has remained consistent that we said from the beginning is this show is not going to be just us sitting here giving our opinions right you know certainly i've been on 100 episodes now if you've been uh, listening to a lot of our shows you know my opinions Mm -hmm. educated opinions i hope periodically (laughs) good good but we always want other opinions on this show i love the episodes where we bring somebody in who completely disagrees with what we're saying i love getting those side interviews that say something different because i think the, it, to cover training science, you need to hear all the different sides. You need to hear different perspectives and then decide what's right for you. All right, so let's get into the episode itself. Today, episode 100, we get nearly two hours of Dr. Seiler. Our conversation is natural, casual even, but there are so many moments of enlightenment and clarity. He's, he's such a knowledgeable man. Trevor wrote an outline for the show, as he always does. Thank you, Trevor. Then, What was the original theme? Yeah, I don't know. We we proceeded to completely disregard it. 
Completely. I think our original theme was past, present, and future of exercise physiology. Yeah. To our a- credit, I think we mentioned all three of those words <laughs> at one point. We did. <laughs> we did. That's a big... That would be a really long podcast if we did cover all of that material. That is fair. And yeah. and fortunately, that's about the extent of which we stuck to the outline. Yeah. That being said, we, we, we learn about the inception of the polarized method from the man who popularized the ideas. We also talk about Dr. Seiler's current research on the all-important aerobic threshold. And we jaw, and I like to throw that word in there since... Dr. Seiler is a Texan. And that's kind of, a, I feel like that's a, a Texas term. We jaw about the future of sports science. One last thing before we get into it. Are you following Dr. Seiler on Twitter? If not, you should. He's a wealth of knowledge. He frequently posts workout challenges, surveys, and his commentary on the new scientific research and studies is worth seeing. Check him out. He's at Steven Seiler. Now, Sit back and grab your favorite beverage, or better yet, find a nice long stretch of lonely road to listen in. Let's make you fast. Well, we are sitting down for our hundredth episode. It's hard to believe. Here we are, Trevor. And I know, you know, we're we're sitting there, say two months ago, looking at each other. What should the hundredth episode be? It didn't take us long to come up with the idea. We were thinking the same thing. Yep. And there's here, only and one answer. There's <laughs> only one answer. And he's on the on the line with us from Norway, Dr. Seiler. Thank you so much for joining us for this momentous occasion. <laughs> well, thank you. Hey, it's Jay-Z calling from Norway. It's Jay-Z. We I have, think you're yes. bigger than Jay-Z now. <laughs> no. <laughs> I've been trying to come up with a better analogy to to really encapsulate how i mean jay-z is old i mean he's he's past don't put down old (laughs) that's fair (laughs) okay good point good point ageist right off the bat i'm sorry i'm very sorry i'm very sorry but but i i I will admit i actually listened to some jay-z the other day and i kind of went yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly. So we, we might have to come up with something. <laughs> I was going to say, that's the exact response I get from my teenage son. So I guess maybe well, I am like Jay Z. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we'll keep it at Jay Z for the time being. Maybe we'll come up with something better. Maybe your teenage son will uh, modify his, uh, his well, perspective well, a little bit in, in the future. In 10 years. Being Canadian, sure you're, you're the, the rush. Rush. That's tragically really, that's hip. really dating. Oh him. wow. I was listening to Rush when I was like on the school bus going to track meets as a teenager. So that makes two of us. Rush. <laughs> my gosh. Uh, see, nobody that's listening to us un- knows what the heck you're talking about now. I bet that's not true. I bet that's not you true. You think? Are there people my I, age? I, oh, yeah. Well, well people okay. as old as us, if there's any left that are actually <laughs> <They're> <laughs> still riding bikes yeah. and doing stuff. If we want if we want to attract a younger audience, which we do, then we're gonna have to come up with a better analogy. Okay. Well, I'll leave that. But we don't have to come up with that right now. No, we can uh, what what we want to do today to, to talk about a little bit of the past and a little bit of the present and a little bit of the future is have Dr. Seiler walk us through those things. How did we get here? 
when it can, comes to the polarized training model. How, what are we working on now? What is he working on now? And what do we have to look forward to in the future when it comes to training science, to exercise physiology? That's really what we want to talk about yeah. in today's episode. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously we can't cover the whole history of exercise physiology, but a, a really interesting question that I, I'm not sure we've ever given this context is we're in this middle of this debate of, is it, should we train polarized? Should we train sweet spots? Should we just be doing, especially if you only have six, seven hours per week, should you just be doing high intensity all the time? Uh, and there's people on all sides of this camp. How did, what's the history? How did we get to this debate? I, for me, if you start with me, I'm trained in the United States. My uh, physiological background comes from there. Although as a student, we did, we were influenced by research that was coming out of Scandinavia because a lot of the endurance physiology research was actually developed in the you know there was a lot of good work in the 50s 60s 70s coming out of scandinavia but i was trained as a student like almost everyone in my generation with a lot of research that was based on uh doing studies on untrained people on students often fit reasonably fit but but not specifically trained students that were part of some physical education education class uh and they they did a study they they were participants in some eight-week training study and this is kind of you know when we were first getting into physiology and exercise physiology and there were these exercise science programs developing then you get a lot of these studies from the 70s maybe early 80s um that are showing that yep if you train people for eight weeks at about 75% of their maximum heart rate and you adjust a little bit along the way. So you basically put them at their threshold, have them cycle for 45 minutes a day. Well, their VO2 max goes up and their threshold goes up. Uh, it works. And that kind of became the best practice model for stimulating endurance training adaptations. And, we all kind of did it. It's even part of the American College of Sports Medicine kind of guidelines for training. And it does work if you're, if you're untrained. Um, it works if you haven't been training and, and are coming back and you want to just get, get rolling. Uh, then you kind of just find a reasonably tough intensity and hang on for 45 minutes and, and then call it a day. And, and you're going to get a nice response in a few weeks. So that's, that's kind of background. And, and then, and we don't, we didn't do much research on actual athletes. We, we, cause they weren't coming into laboratories and so forth. So I guess what kind of happened for me was when I moved to Norway, just as fate would have it, I started getting these impulses and, and hearing things that didn't quite jive with um, that model. And fortunately I was able to interrogate that inconsistency by, you know, actually doing some research studies and aligning myself with different groups and, and actually in different countries. And then ultimately kind of what emerged was a bit different picture when you started looking at people that had made it past the first six six months, let's say, yep, 
you know, once you get past the first six months or so of, of regular endurance training, then the picture seems to change as far as in terms of what works and what doesn't particularly continue to work. And so that's when things for me got interesting. And, and ultimately then, um, you know, this pattern I saw, we just gave it a name, you know, because <laughs> it was kind of polarized. It wasn't too much in the middle. It was kind of the opposite of what I'd been taught. And so that, that term came for me was just a way of distinguishing from this idea of finding that threshold and, and hanging on there as long as you could. So, so that's, that's kind of the, the background. I never planned this. It certainly wasn't a, a priori kind of thought that, well, I'm going to go to Norway and I'm going to disprove, you know, I'm going <laughs> to disprove the, the standard training model uh, that I've learned in the United States because I certainly didn't expect to, and I and I was kind of part of it. I, I love going out and beating myself up every day and doing intervals and threshold and so forth. Do you, Do you remember Do you remember the first time you co you coined that term or you used it in uh, a piece that you had written? There were the two papers that bring this kind of to bear. One was written in two thousand and four, and the other two thousand and six. So that's how old they are as they're coming up. Yeah, they're 15 years ago. Already before that, I used the term a bit in some lectures before the data actually got published. I was already kind of starting to use the term. And, and, and where did the term come from? I got to be honest, I think I had been reading some uh, cosmology kinds of popular science stuff and, and you know, black hole. The first thing I kind of found was this idea of a black hole you know the, that sucks everything in <laughs> and so I thought well that's kind of that seems to be what happens here is that people get sucked in you know the intensity gets pulled in towards the middle another way of saying that would be regression towards the mean you know you kind of I do remember making a, a slide uh, of a kind of a black hole concept that I presented, and I think that was around 2001. So it took a, you know, it took me a while to kind of get my head around what was what I was seeing, and then you know, kind of try to frame it uh, appropriately. And and I can assure you, it was not immediately received as any kind of uh, like, oh yes, this is correct. You know, that's not the reception I was getting from the sports scientists. I, I, I think I've so said before. I, I presented in a in France at a European sports science meeting, and I, and it was one of these kind of symposiums, and it was a good audience, a big audience, and I, I just can remember as I'm speaking, seeing national team coaches, you know, coaching types that were in the audience nodding their head affirmatively. And at the same time, getting responses from the sports scientists in the audience so that were not affirmative at all. They were like, no, wait a minute, this can't be right. Uh, so that was really, I think that was kind of where it started was the coaches already kind of knew a lot of this. At least a lot of the good endurance coaches in Europe and Scandinavia, they were saying, yeah, this resonates. This is, this is how we do things. We do a lot of, you know, volume, low intensity work. We do some interval training, but we, we kind of know that if we want to just thrash our athletes, it's, it's, we, the way to do it is to train too much, you know, middle of the road intensity.
but then that it didn't resonate with the sports science people because they're the ones that have done studies that were more short term on a lower, you know, less trained group and so forth. Now I'm generalizing here, but that was the kind of the basic uh, um, confrontation or where that was coming was the, you know, sports science studies from the lab with untrained people versus the trial and error, uh, field-based knowledge that had developed in the sports environment or in the performance environment. So I've said this on the show before. I think you're, you're proving this point. This is, this is uh, something that was said to me that had a huge impact. Back in 2006, the physiologist at the, the National Center in Canada told me, you want to be a great physiologist? Go see what the coaches are doing because the coaches are always 15 years ahead of the science. And literally at that same time, that's what you were doing. The scientists at the time were saying, we don't really buy this concept, but you had all the coaches nodding their head and you were saying there's something to this and then you went and proved it. Yeah, and I guess I, I, for whatever reason, I respected coaches, that there was some kind of tacit knowledge that they had and just because they were not able to use uh, the lingo of science, um, I think I had a feeling that that, you know, <laughs> didn't matter, um, that they still knew stuff that was worth knowing. And so that's kind of, I think, just starting from the standpoint of respecting the other, respecting the knowledge of the other's field, you know, the coach or the, uh, you know, the practitioner. I think that's a really important starting point for cooperation. And what I would say is, is that that has really improved in the last, you know, two decades or decade and a half. I think we are seeing these kind, these environments where you have, you know, teams that are built, being built up around uh, the athlete group that, you know, whether it's the professional cycling team or the uh, university sports team, there's, a, there's kind of a better integration of, um, you know, sports science and coaches. Not, not everywhere, but it definitely there are areas, there are places where this is being done pretty darn well. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting when we, we created this outline and I was thinking about this, how did we get to this sweet spot versus polarized versus high intensity debate? There, there's a grounding in science behind all of them. So when you look at the, the high intensity bias, you pointed out exactly back then and, and still you have a lot of researchers that we're doing a lot of high intensity research because it's it's really hard to get somebody in a lab to do a six hour ride, um, to have them do a lot of low intensity for, and frankly, that sort of adaptations is measured in years. So by necessity, when you're, you're doing lab testing, you're really focusing on interval work. What's the most effective interval work? And I think that drove a lot of the, the high intensity bias. You look at the, the sweet spot approach. If you look at Training with, with Power, the, the book by Hunter Allen and, and Dr. Coggins, there's a table in there which is called the Expected Physiological Adaptations from Training in Zones 1 to 7. That's really the, the foundation of Sweet Spot. And you look at Dr. Coggin, he is a, a heart specialist. He has a, a real grounding in, in biology and medicine. And his approach to figuring out what is, what are, where is the best place to train is he took 
all the different physiological adapt adaptations. So things like increased plasma volume, increased mitochondrial enzymes. I'm literally just reading this table mm. and then figured out where do you see the, the biggest adaptations in these different systems. And when you look at his table, what he landed on with his science is you get the biggest bang for the buck in that, that sweet spot zone. That, that's where you see the biggest adaptations in the most systems. Mm. What I find interesting about the history of, of Polarize with you is this is something that's really hard to test. So it didn't start with the science. It started more with you looking at what are athletes doing, what are coaches doing, and then you had to figure out how do we actually test this? How do we actually find the science for this? Yeah, if I were to construct a table based on what I learned as a master and PhD student, you know, then it would it would not be different than what Dr. Coggin presented. You know, it, it's consistent with what I learned as well. But what I didn't learn at that time, what we just didn't talk about was the the backside of the coin, which is that, hey, training is not all good. You know, it's stressful. It does damage. It does cellular damage. It causes immunodepression. It causes inflammatory responses. It stimulates, you know, you, you know all these things that we now talk about a lot, we didn't really talk about as much back then. Or we kind of packed it under this thing called overtraining, which was an extreme situation. I think maybe that's what has happened for me is just to try to look at from the helicopter's perspective uh, when you trained so many times a week and per month and a year and we're, we're in the hundreds, you know, the, the typical athlete can number their training sessions for a year in the hundreds. Even a guy like me, I, maybe 250 a year an elite athlete, maybe 500, 600 individual bouts of stimuli and stress every year. And from that helicopter perspective, then you start to look and say, well, signal, stress, you know, adaptive signal, stress response. And there's a balance there. And it seems that over time with trial and error, the a lot of endurance environments figured out that they could kind of maneuver the, you might call it the balance point or fulcrum for this, this scale where you have signal on the one side, you know, adaptive signal and stress on the other. They could kind of shift that balance a little bit in their favor if they manipulated the training intensity distribution. And it seems like the way they found that to work is that they said, well, we're going to trade some intensity for more volume. We're going to stay under the radar on stress and, and collect more time. Uh, and then we're going to do the high intensity, but we're going to do it, what should I say, a bit judiciously uh, because it's a, it's a sword that, that is double-edged. And so that's, that's what it seems to have happened. Obviously, these, these coaches and athletes were not specialists in physiology, but they did know enough to figure out what, what was working and what, you know, what was allowing them to repeat you know, and have that consistency of training that seems to be necessary for long-term progress. And I think you just hit on the, the key word. This is where I landed when I was trying to figure out what, what 
the, or compare the different sciences behind these different approaches is you said long-term. There is a time component to this. So when you look at these different tables of where do you get the biggest training stimulus, it's what's your time frame. And yeah. I would agree that if your time frame is short, so like if an athlete came to me and said, I'm out of shape, I got an event in six weeks, how do I train for it? I'm not going to say, go out and do a whole bunch of long, slow, four-hour right. rides. Right. I'm going to say, here's some interval work, destroy yourself, because mm -hmm. that's how we're going to give I actually, I've had athletes do this, and I call it the Rocky approach. I'm like, we're going to get you fit really quickly, mm -hmm. and then you're going to burn out really quickly, too. <laughs> so, right. <it's>, uh, <laughs> Yeah, the right. faster you rise, the faster but, you fall. You know, so yes, I would agree with, with Dr. Coggins' table. When you look at the zone one, zone two, the training stimulus isn't high, but it's over time. It's, this is, the, you know, the high intensity is measured in weeks. The, the low, long, slow, low intensity work is measured in, in years. And I always go back to a, a real key paper for me, which you've referenced, is that paper by Dr. Larson where he said exactly that. He said high intensity is quick, but it seems to have a ceiling. The low intensity work doesn't seem to have a, a plateau. You can continue to improve. Or at least it's a lot farther down the road. Yeah. And, and I, you made me remind, you reminded me of something. And I think this is also important to remember is that the lab studies were biased methodologically by the concept of equating total work. Yes. And this is a fundamental that, is that has been a gripe for me, you know, and I kind of developed a different approach, which is this ISO effort or equating effort, because I think it's more consistent with the way athletes actually train. But if you go back through the literature for years, the way the, the accepted way methodologically of uh, equating different training groups was to equate total work. So if you've got this interval group, they're going to do high intensity intervals and you're going to compare with this group that's going to do steady state you know, moderate intensity or low intensity training, then you equate for total kilojoules of work. And what do you end up with? Well, the interval session is, you know, a total of 25 minutes and the, and the, the so-called low intensity session is 45 minutes, you know, so it's, it's, it's not even what anything like what athletes would actually do. Um, and so there's a bias there that also has influenced things. And that's a part of some of that bias. Where I do give it some validity is often they were looking at recreational or unfit people. And you're not going to take somebody off the couch who's just trying to improve their health and say, oh, go out and do a four-hour, four or five-hour bike ride. They're not going to do that. They're going to have an hour in the gym. And the question is how to maximize that hour in the gym. Well, you can do 20 minutes of intervals, get some a really good training stimulus, or, or the most they're going to do is just 45 minutes easy. So I, I do see some ex oh yeah, some rationale behind that, but it just doesn't apply when you're talking about athletes who are trying to perform. And, and think about that a little bit, because it, it, it strikes me that we, we don't think this way, but that tells us that the untrained person from a stress perspective, they are less prepared to deal with a two-hour submaximal 65% of you know heart rate max ride mm -hmm. than they are, uh, you know, six times three minutes. 
that's basically what you're saying is you can't get people in, you know, two hours, they'll just say, no, I can't do that. But right. they, but they can do six times three minutes because they're so out of shape. Their heart rate flies up anyway. They're good. It doesn't take much intensity to get them up in that high intensity zone. And they do their, th- you know, three minute repeat bounce and they're exhausted, but they can do it. And they go home thinking, whoo, I worked really hard. And yeah. versus the two hour, you know, where you just sit there and, and uh, you know, do the work that they're actually not fit enough to be able to do that. So I, I find that an interesting contrast to the way we typically think is the high intensity is really hard, but that's the stuff we can get people to do in the lab because they can, they're, they're unfit enough that they actually don't have to go that hard to get the cardiovascular responses. I was actually looking at a, a paper you wrote where you point out exactly that and you use numbers, you use power and point out the fact you take a really unfit person and have them do intervals. They might, let's say they're doing two, three minute intervals. They might be doing them at 270, 260 watts, which you take a pro cyclist, a world tour lever cyclist. That's what they're doing their long slow at for five hours. So that very unfit person, when they're doing those intervals, like you said, it's not that damaging because they just can't do that much. No, because they just do not have the machinery to, to bear, you know, bring to bear. And, and so I, I think this is the same. Let's take a world that you and I don't work so much in, strength training. But, but if you talk to elite power lifters, you know, these guys and women that can lift these amazing loads, they train less frequently. You know, they do heavy really yep. heavy sessions less frequently than the lesser trained because it takes them so long to recover. They'll go 10 days between yeah. deadlift, uh, you know, hard deadlift sessions. And I think there's some, you know, resonance there as, as we start to really develop the athletes and they are able to really recruit and mobilize the full capacity of their systems, then there is a bigger cost as well. Well, another example is you, you can talk about sprinters. You take track, like top, top level track sprinters. You look at their workout. They won't do a lot of sprints because they're breaking 2000 Watts. It's incredibly damaging on them where you take somebody like me, I could go out and do a five hour ride and sprint every 10 minutes and it'll hurt me, but it's not going to kill me because I can't break a thousand Watts. Yeah. Cause you don't have the amplitude. Yeah. So the, and, and, and you're touching on something that's uh, <laughs> what I'm finding. And it's not just me, but others are finding because I keep getting these questions. They say, well, this polarized thing, is that also the way we should train in strength training? And is this also what sprinters are actually kind of doing? And, and in a way, yes, we're seeing the similar we're seeing similar patterns like the sprinters, the the running sprinters. We published a paper. Uh, Thomas Haugen and Espen Tunnison and I were together on a paper, and Thomas is just an expert on sprinting. And I was just brought in to deal with certain aspects of it, but he looked at all the science, looked at the the practice, and he's saying the practitioners they. <laughs> They use basically a polarized sprinting model where they very rarely do real all out sprints. In fact, almost never truly all out uh, because of the uh, 
the cost, the you know, the the damage to joints that I mean, the muscle fibers and so forth. But they do a lot of you might call it ninety percent loads, which for a sprinter, the difference between ninety percent and a hundred percent is huge. That's like for an endurance athlete, the difference between I don't know sixty five seventy percent of heart rate max and ninety seven percent of heart rate max. So I there is there does seem to be some consistency emerging in this approach and I don't have all the answers as to why but I I am intrigued by the fact that it's it doesn't just apply to endurance well, I think it, it some of it comes and I'm just talking out loud here but I think some of it comes down to as you get to higher and higher levels as you said the high intensity that that getting up in that zone three doing the really hard work is very damaging it's very tough on you. It takes a while to recover from it. So you need to be more and more judicious with it. And, and I, I'll throw in something else here. When I, I had a PhD student not so long ago, his name was Einstein Silta. And so those who follow along, they can find some of his articles from his PhD work. And when Einstein and I were kind of feeling each other out as to, you know, do, do we want do we want to go into this kind of scientific partnership for four years together that, you know, cause that's what it is with a PhD student and the advisor. He said, look, I, I think threshold training is really important. And I think threshold training is really hard. You know, he was a marathoner and he says, and when you're really fit, it is demanding to run at threshold for so long. And I said, all right, I want you as a PhD student because obviously we think a little bit differently, but, you know, <laughs> so that's good. We're going to make each other better. And, but I think he obviously had a point and, and it's also goes to, to my point is nowadays, if you ask me, you know, I often talk about three zones. You guys have heard the green and the yellow and the red or zone one, two, three and the physiological, these turn points, but if I were to even simplify things more as a coach, when I'm coaching my daughter, I basically think two, two zones, green and not green. Red. <laughs> yeah. Green right. and, you know, some shade of red because I'm thinking under the stress radar over the above, you know what I mean? And so that's the way I'm planning the training is, is, hey, we're going to do these things and we're going to do a lot of low intensity. We're going to collect, you know, hours. We're going to build a base and then we're going to judiciously use our high intensity days in different ways. Sometimes it's going to be threshold. Sometimes it's going to be zone four, but it's, it's, it all goes into that category of this is a day that is going to be costly. I want it to be costly, but I have to also build in space around that day with the low intensity sessions after so that this athlete can recover. And this athlete has to be disciplined enough to keep the low intensity low. You know, so that that's it becomes pretty binary for me. Something we've received several emails about where people get a little confused. So I just want to clarify this. Uh, so Dr. Seiler talks about his three zone models: zone one being that that low intensity, zone two being often what people think of as sweet spot, and zone three being the high intensity. 
what's really important to understand here is in the scientific community, when they're talking about that zone two, which we think of as sweet spot, the scientific world calls that threshold because that's between your aerobic threshold and your anaerobic threshold. So they think of threshold as a range. So I know some of our listeners have been confused because they hear scientists talk about threshold. And that's actually a little bit different from when you're talking about go out and do threshold intervals like those four by eight minute intervals. Those are actually more a zone three workout, even though you um, or your friends on a training ride might refer to those as threshold intervals. That's a zone three workout. And when you hear scientists talk about threshold work, they're talking more about sweet spot or that that zone two. I just want to clarify that. Right. People yeah, for sure. For me, a four a four times eight workout is in that zone three. You know, it's it's higher intensity than threshold, but you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's a hundred watts difference. It may only be thirty watts higher or twenty five watts higher, but it it's enough that it pushes people into that uh, zone three. In the best of ways, are you using your daughter as a experiment? Are you trying new things with her? Um, Is it a case study? Well, I think I think any coach does that to a certain extent, but only to the extent that there's agreement with that between athlete and coach. So, uh, at least for my daughter, <laughs> she's fairly new in the game, so a lot of it has been trying to just get off to a good start and and build. But my daughter is an independent, twenty-one year old girl and she she says look you know i'm gonna i'm gonna do things my way sometimes i'm gonna adjust and and she does but what my daughter tends to do is she can go harder than i than i uh prescribe on the hard days she can go and harder can be in the form of higher intensity but more likely it'll be in the form of more repetitions at some particular intensity like an example is that i you know she's getting ready for a half marathon things are going really well because we i feel like we've c- cracked some codes on how her body works so so we're doing some very specific work that's that's more half marathon pace which is kind of that upper threshold uh, so we're doing she's doing some sessions that would be categorized as threshold training. Like the last session was two kilometer repeats on the track with 400 meter floats. Two kilometers for her is seven minutes, 705 or so. And then a 490 second float. And I told her to do six of them. And her being my daughter, she used a standard mathematical correction factor, which is Take whatever dad says and multiply it times <laughs> 1.5 and then, you know, and then do one more after that. You know, so yep, anyway, so do she that. does nine <laughs> times 2K, kicks ass. I mean, it's a great, she did a great session, but she will tend to push the limits. And I tell her, I said, all right, I'm okay with that. You know, you know your body, but. You have to be okay with me being super strict regarding what you do the next day and the day after that. Mm. Does that you know? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Is that my job is to think big picture and to think long season continuity, keep this kid healthy, you know. And and she her tendency will be to, you know, she loves to 
go to dig you know she brings a big shovel so so we we balance each other out you know and 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 grow and i have a growing respect for her ability to listen to her own body and learn and make small mistakes and and i think that's the way good athletes work is they they listen to you as a coach but then they listen to their body and they find you know they find their version of an optimization process and so i have a lot of it, it brings me a lot of uh, enjoyment obviously because she's my daughter but i learn a lot from just really interacting with her and understanding how her brain's working you know her body and and how she's responding to the different prescriptions and so forth so you know, coaching is fun. It's frustrating. You guys are coaches as well. So you're always experimenting, but always with the deepest respect for that. I, I am never going to try to, I'm never going to do an experiment that I think is too risky. But a, a good coach needs to experiment because there is always individual difference, right? If you're not experimenting. Right. It means you're applying the exact same plan to every athlete and you're not looking at what makes them unique. Right. And I mean, we're as we addressed at the very beginning of this episode, sometimes the coaches are experimenting to the point where they're straying from what the science is saying and they're figuring mm -hmm. out stuff before the science even gets there. So that ha that is a necessity in a way to advance. Yeah, I, you know, and, and I believe there's precedence for this in other environments. I mean, you know, if we, I've said this before that uh, research on average people does not scale up. But what do you see when you have these high performance environments like Formula One racing and, and, you know, NASA and so forth? They are having to figure out stuff that has not been figured out before. So they're having they, they're playing with a fresh deck of cards um, and they measure lots of stuff. And then eventually they figure stuff out that five years later is, is in the car you're driving, you know, to work and back. And so the, the high-performance environments often are these innovation arenas, these, you know, and there are spectacular failures in these high-performance environments, but the successes lead to innovation. And so I, I do think that's the way it ends up working is that our elite coaches and athletes are on the ragged edge uh, of what's possible but in doing so they learn a lot about human physiology human psychology and the interaction between the two so i want to go back to something that you said earlier about your daughter because you and i had talked about this a couple of weeks ago but we weren't recording um that i think is a, a really important point is knowing the purposes of those workouts so i do something similar where sometimes i'll get on the train or i'll do my intervals and <clears throat> When I finish the intervals, I go, boy, I'm having a good day. Uh, I feel like I got more in me. And what I might do is, since I'm on the trainer, I'll hop into a Zwift race, get, get a little more intensity, but get it on the day when I'm supposed to be going hard. But then the next day when I'm supposed to be riding easy, it's easy. I don't care if I'm feeling good. I'm not hopping into a race on that day. And I think that's important because I have seen athletes where 
they'll do their interval work. Then the next day they get on the trainer when they're supposed to be going easy and go, I feel pretty good. And then they do a little intensity on that day. Right. They're throwing intensity in right. every day and then you start losing the purpose. Absolutely. I think you see it. I think you see it often that athletes are really good at hurting themselves. Really good athletes know they can hurt themselves one day and back off. And a lot of other people don't have that. So they need a coach to tell them today is the easy day. You're good at hurting yourself, but I need to be the one to tell you, you need to also rest. Yes. I agree that the best athletes are really good at hurting themselves, but they are also really good at not hurting themselves. Right. If that makes sense. It's, it's, and it's knowing when. Mm-hmm. There's a time and a place for everything. And there is a time to bring the big shovel and dig. Uh, and so... Like there's, I'll give you an example. There's these three uh, brothers in Norway, the Ingebrigtsen brothers that are all 1500 meter specialists, fantastic runners, all have run 331 or lower for 1500. And if you know running, that's fast. Mm -hmm. And, and they, they will sometimes race. And then after the race, (laughs) they will continue their workout. So they may run in a national race or even a World Cup race. And then after the race, they're not done because their coach has said, look, you know, that was just a three and a half minute race. You know, you've now you've turned. Yeah, that's not much. Yeah. Now you've turned on the system. Let's not waste this day. Because if we waste, if we just do this much, then then we're going to have to race, go hard tomorrow. And then you got two halfway hard days in a row. I would rather get bang for my buck from this hard day. So that, you know, and I, I think this philosophically has influenced me as well. Uh, the other day, I, I did the same that you said, Trevor. I did a Zwift race, except I did the, the race first. The race was only 25 yep. minutes or so. 28 i can't remember anyway uh, you know i worked hard but then i thought all right you know what i'm gonna recover a bit and then i'm gonna hop back on the back and i'm gonna do some of these 30 15s and so i was able to do 20 of those or actually 21 21 times 30 15 with good quality 15 minutes after or 20 minutes after that race uh, now that may, you may say, well, that's because you suck and your race, you just didn't work very hard. In the race. <laughs> <laughs> but, but actually, you know, my average heart rate during those 25 minutes was 93 or 4% of heart, you know, so I was working pretty good, but I thought, you know, I'm right. going to get a little more out of this session because I want to improve. I'm going to push myself and then it makes it even easier to be very disciplined the next day and go easy. Does that, you know, does that make sense? And, and my daughter, yes, my daughter yes. says exactly the same. She says, Papa, you know, if I, if I do a really solid high intensity session, then it's really easy for me to keep the intensity low the next two days. Cause I kind of have to, you know, so it's again, this idea of it's so simple, but it's still, we're still saying it hard days, hard, easy days, easy. And just the ability to maintain that discipline in your training structure solves so many problems. So I'm going to stop short of saying that every time you have a hard day, you should fall off the bike. I think there is such a thing as doing too much where you're just doing damage. No, I agree. But I will say if you are doing a training program where 
you kind of have hard days, but the next day you get on the bike and you're like, oh, I'm ready to go again. And you never have that day where you're just like, I'd actually really be very happy to ride very slow right, right. now. You're probably not going hard enough on your hard days. A good hard day, you should be able to get off of the bike, not fall off the bike. But the next day, go, yeah, I'm quite happy to not break 120 meters yeah, per yeah. minute or whatever. Right. It should, be, it should be pretty obvious that you've essentially obliterated yourself to the point where you're like, I've ha- this, I'm, I'm done. And tomorrow, I can't do any more. Yeah, and and there will be days. I think you know, I, and I, I say this to my daughter because let's say when you when you go into a high intensity session, there's two ways of uh, regulating it. The one is to say I have a, a specific power or pace that I'm going to hold. So you go in there, you go into the session with this kind of anxiety that man, I hope I can hold those 385 watts, you know. And then the other way is to say, I'm going to go in and I'm going to go on feel and it's going to, I want it to feel hard, but manageable for four times eight minutes. And that's what I'm going to do. Well, these are two very different psychological approaches. And I think both of them have their place in a build part of the season when you just want continuity you want to do the work like i've said this with my daughter i said look just go on feel just you know but let's keep heart rate below zone five i want you to don't get above about 93 percent you know so we're going to try to be in that zone four that i talk about in a five zone model but just go on feel and don't worry about the the speed on the treadmill or on the track because that that can often become very psychologically almost damaging you know if you don't hit those exact paces every time you do a hard session versus the the you know where you say i'm getting ready for this race i need to hold this power this is my time trial power uh, you know where you're very external load focused and and there's a place for both but um i think it's probably a good idea to mix it up a bit and don't always get caught up in your watts because you're not going to have a great day every day. Some days it's just going to be a decent day. And you just do the work and get out. You know, and, and accept that. And don't take it as a, as, a, as a crushing defeat. Because that is the nature of the beast. You're going to train 500 times this year. And they're not all going to be great. You know, I think that's part of learning to you know how training works and i know you you understand this but for young athletes and for people on you know they're like my daughter they're kind of on a general climb they're, you know they are progressing then they have this expectation that every workout is going to be a new a new top a new pr yeah. a new ftp a new five minute power you know and when that doesn't happen then they what do they do they double down instead of saying you know what i think i need some rest they say no i I just gotta go harder so this is the this is the danger that can you can easily fall into with all of that feedback of watts and so forth is it you get you start to train the metrics instead of training your body. I think it was in Joe Friel's book that I read this, but it was a long time ago that I remember reading this and and it had an impact on me of don't try to keep doing the interval work harder each time. 
what you do is find the right intensity and then spend a few weeks learning to tolerate it better. And, and I do think that's a better approach. Yeah. And I, I would frame it as, as first extend and then intensify. So it's like these stair steps, you know, they have length and then they have a, a, a rise, rise, run, rise, run. And if you think, you know, like a prescription, like uh, let's take these eight minute intervals because everybody talks about those, you know, you might start with three of those three times eight minutes and you, you do it. And let's say your average power was 300 Watts for three times eight. So then you're faced with a decision. What is the next step in the progression? Should I go to 310 or should I try to do one more eight minute interval? Right. And in general, I would say, well, first let's try to go one more and maybe even go two more. I, I tend to like to get 30 to 40 minutes worth of, of quality work as a kind of the accumulated duration before I start thinking about stepping up the power or the intensity. So, so it's this, you know, first extend and then intensify, extend, and you can extend quite a bit. And, and as you know, you know, a, a 10 watt increase on the intensity is big. Yep. So you know, the increments on the intensification will have to be small, but if you can, just think of the, the competition implications or the performance implications of being able to hold that power five times eight instead of three times eight. You know, think of how you've improved your repeatability. So that's a big victory. That's a big improvement. But it doesn't necessarily show up as a higher six-minute or five-minute power. Yeah, I have these, I've talked about them before, these hill repeats that uh, I do. And I got several years ago kind of caught up and I wanted to be able to hit the power I used to be able to hit. And I got myself to that point. But the difference was back when I was at my best, I used to do seven, eight repeats. Now I'm doing three. Right. So you, you look at me and you go, you have, you have the same power. So it makes you feel good about yourself. But no, I'm not anywhere close to the same level uh, because I used to be able to do that seven, eight times. And I've. Because uh, you're actually paying a much bigger price. You know, you're, you're having to dig much deeper. And l I have noticed lately, I've gotten back to the mindset of, I'm going to do these at lower power, but I'm going to try to get more of them because that repeatability, that sustainability is so important. And, and then if you take that mindset and, and you multiply it times the maybe 100 hard sessions you'll do per year, then you start to see that, well, this makes a big difference because if I, if I give up a little bit of intensity, I can get a lot more accumulated duration. And if I'm trying to develop, you know, create a signal for adaptation, then that can be a very good trade-off because I can create a good signal for adaptation. But for at least a lot of athletes, based on the research that we've done, what we see is that there seems to be a pretty significant extra cost of really really taking it up to the highest intensities, you know, zone five versus zone four in this intensity scheme is more, is not just a little more costly. It's a lot more costly from a recovery point of view. And so that, that has, I think, significance when you're thinking about choices you're making about these hit sessions, how are you organizing them? 
And, and I've become more and more convinced that I, I'm going to be willing to make that trade and reduce my intensity or the intensity of my daughter, you know, what she's doing, reduce the intensity just a little, but then get a significant uh, addition in total accumulated duration. And that seems to be a good trade-off because the overall recovery, you know, she recovers faster. Athletes in general seem to recover better in that with that approach for my daughter it's just it's we found it was just absolutely critical that when she you know because she would go she would push those four times eight minute intervals for example just she would just push them too hard she would bury herself and she was up at 98 percent of heart rate max you know and she was just cooked and she couldn't recover it was taking too long so so if you looked at the big picture she was losing training you know she was uh, you know, the cost was much bigger than what it was worth. But then when we adjusted the intensity down just a little bit, everything got better, including the personal, you know, the, the PBs. When I give those to an athlete, I always give them a heart rate limit. I go, this is, do as high a wattage as you can sustain, but you're not allowed to break right. X heart rate. So for example, with me, my threshold heart rate is right around 172. So my limit's 174. Yep even though I can get up to 182, 183. That's very much like what I do with my daughter and, and myself when I'm smart enough is just kind of put a ceiling on the, on the heart rate. And that just makes, it, it makes us able to come back the next day and do some more work. Well, let's, let's shift away for a bit now from the, the conversation we were just having to the present day. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, Dr. Seiler, speaking to that, speaking to the, the current state of endurance training a bit more. Well, I, I think what's, ex what's fascinating is that we, the world has gotten so small. You've got these tools now like Zwift, uh, you know, different kinds of online uh, interactive tools uh, groups through Strava and so forth, where you can compete, you can test yourself against others daily, if you so choose. And hourly, if you hourly, so choose. if you so choose, that's so true. Every five minutes. Yeah. So, so it's yeah. a fascinating development, and 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 the parallel to it at the elite level of course is that you have television and everything that has driven this development of world cup schedules that are just packed with events and the seasons are long the seasons are much longer than the off season which is the opposite of what used to be true and and so that is affecting how we train it's affecting periodization ideas you know let's say the idea of periodization from 50 years ago was based on that you would maybe have two or three big events per year maybe even just one but not very many versus today even for the high performance athlete they have to be able to think well, it's not so much peaking that I'm trying to do, it's sustaining. It's, you know, it's uh, keeping my body at some kind of a reasonable plateau for a long time. How do I achieve that? Because I'm racing weekly and it's not because I want to, it's because I have to. That's, that's the nature of the beast. Um, so anyway, I think this is interesting, but if we take the age groupers like me, you know, I can go into Zwift, uh, 
every day and it is so tempting to chase that squirrel you know <laughs> there's events there's races there's you know stuff oh i could do that that's a 20 minute race that's not too bad you know and when you do that often enough then you fall into that black hole it is hugely tempting I, i'm on zwift a lot and i have learned i have to start putting zwift into erg mode because it's like you said it, it's like the dog going squirrel you, you, you think you're going to do something controlled and then all of a sudden a group of 50 riders passes by you and next thing you know, you're in the middle of a <laughs> yeah. race. Well, and you can even choose group rides. I choose group rides a lot. I kind of sample them and, and yep. it says well, this group ride is going to be between 2.3 and 2.7 watts per kg. And I say, oh, good. That's perfect. You know, and then it's at two, nine and three from like after 60 seconds, you know, <laughs> and, so, and my temptation is just to hang on just to say well okay you're trying to get rid of me yeah. see if you can do it you know and then i and then i and then i've been dragged completely out of my intended intensity so it and i and i'm i'm the guy that's supposed to you know i'm teaching you guys this and i and i i get sucked into it myself sometimes so i'm just saying that in this modern you know uh, highly accessible environment i think it's just wonderful don't get me wrong. I love Zwift, but you, you really have to do what athletes do. And that is plan your, plan your work and work your plan. You know, if you go into, you know, if I say today's an easy day, then I've got to stick to it. And I've got to, if I'm in that Zwift ecosystem or whatever, I have to be in control. Don't let Zwift be in control of me. I'm on Zwift zero times a year but uh <laughs> but i have the temptation of when i'm riding my bike to work in the morning i have people pass me on their e-bikes oh yeah and the temptation is do i sit on their wheel do i try to race these yep. cheaters yeah with their yeah. e-bikes or do i do i uh sit up and just do my thing so i i know what you're saying so that's the that is yeah but that must be the real world equivalent of zwift is the exactly e-bike and I and I've I feel your pain because I have been passed by a forty-five-year-old woman uh, sitting upright on a e-bike, you know. <laughs> yep, with a basket with a, dog, a small dog sitting in the front and, of it, and her groceries and, in the back. And I'm going to be just perfectly honest with an anatomical frame that just is not the picture of athleticism, um, mm -hmm. and yet she just rides past me, and it is extremely galling, but. <laughs> but but I've I've come to terms with it. The the hard lesson I learned because I did chase somebody on an e-bike once is they're going to kill you up the hill. Yeah. But be careful on the descent because a lot of them have limiters. <laughs> yes, right. So I chase this person. We get to the descent and all of a sudden I almost run into oh, them because yeah. <laughs> yep. their bikes they went up the hill faster than they went down yeah, the other side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they have governors, but they also, you know, you're dealing with people that maybe not the best uh, skilled rider either. But that's yeah. neither here nor no. there. But all I can say is those darn batteries are getting really powerful because they're kicking butt up the hills. You know. <laughs> yeah, I think you're pointing out something that that's it's even broader than this. I I, I was thinking about this when I was putting together the outline of back in the 70s and 80s, riders, it was almost entirely feel. Like there were a lot of riders that didn't even have a heart rate strap. Yeah. 
Um, and the only gauge you had of performance is when you finally got to that race in the spring. Now there are so many metrics. You, you can hop and Zwift and race people. You People go out and rides and watch their TSS because they want to get a sufficient TSS from that ride. Or they're going to look at their peak five-minute power or they're going to go do a segment on, on Strava to see if they can PR that particular segment. It is so easy. There are so many numbers and metrics that you can watch and use that can be both powerful but also really take you off track. And I've noticed the one I struggle with is back when I was at my best, we weren't really using TSS. And I had no issues in the winter of going out and just doing a long, slow ride. I try to target around a 123 heart rate. And I looked back at my data from 10 years ago and my TSS and those long, slow rides would be like 180. Now I go for a long, slow ride. And if I see I've only got 100 TSS, I'm like, oh, this isn't a good training ride. <laughs> and there's that temptation to lift the pace. Oh, I because I want that 250, 300 I TSS. You, I never look at TSS. Uh, of course, I, I'm not on, I mean, I my workouts go into training peaks, but I don't really use it. Uh, I have to be honest. But um, TSS, what's it stand for? Training Stress Score. But what's it measuring? It's measuring some manifestation of external load power relative to so power relative to an FTP times minutes and implicit in the TSS score is that every minute is the same the 180th minute is the same as the 30th minute at that low intensity right. you were riding at and the reality is that you and I know that's not true that the 180th or 240th minute at 65% of heart rate max feels different than the 30th, but they are the exact same score in the algorithm. As far as I can tell, as long as the intensity is the same. Yep. So there's issues here that, you know, what, <laughs> what's the difference between load and stress? And that, for that reason, I just, I don't get caught up in TSS because I'm interested in what my body's telling me about my stress. <laughs> you know, what was the stress of this session? I don't need a number that is inherently, it's not fully arbitrary, but it's, it's fairly arbitrary. It's, you know, it's because there is, there are differences, even the same, even the same three hour workout, me yesterday versus me three days later can be very different stresses depending on what my status is. I may even have a virus in my body I don't know about yet. Does that, you know what I'm saying? There's so many things yep. that are influencing the translation from load to stress. I had that experience this weekend. I'm coming off of a really nasty virus. So on Saturday, I did my first long ride in weeks. I'm, I'm still not 100%, so I was keeping it slow. Uh, my TSS, total TSS for that ride looks like a recovery ride. But I can tell you at the end of that ride, I was looking at my map, seeing that my car was three kilometers away and going, I'm not sure I'm going to do <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, anyway, so, hey, and I, I no hats off to Training Peaks. I mean, you know, they've got this tool that people love and they love it so much they almost become religiously addicted to it. Um, but it's worthwhile to have a little bit of reflection about the 
the arbitrary nature of it. The, the, it is basically we're playing with math and the body is not perfectly algebraic in the way that it works. So I, I would just give people a little bit of caution in, in how rigidly they interpret and lean on these numbers. Uh, I think that is what, what I find interesting is that when you talk to the high performance people, they are much less connected to those numbers than the age groupers as a rule. Well, I'm going to give this away a little bit. I'm going to be editing in the next few weeks an episode that I really want to get up that goes back to we were doing a, uh, a show on metrics and what metrics you use. So I started reaching out to top pros to find out what metrics did they really rely on, what numbers did they really care about. I interviewed four top pros, and I didn't get an answer from any one of them because they all went, yeah, my coach looks at that stuff. I don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I got a guy. I'm not going to use his name because he hasn't given me explicit permission, but he, he's on a, a pro tour team. He sent me some of his ride data. I said, hey, I need a calibration. I need to know, you know, a, a decent estimate for your six-minute power and your uh, FTP, whichever one you use and whatever. So he sends me some numbers, and, and he had data from 218 and, and 219. And the numbers he sent me, his six-minute power, was there was a 50-watt difference. You know, it was like 428 and 478 or something like that. And so I just wrote back. I said, you know, hey, can you clue me in? What'd you do different? You know, you're an established pro rider and your six minute power went up 50 watts from year on, you know, year on year. And so then he ends up writing back. He says, you know what? I, I noticed that myself. And I looked at it and, he, <laughs> and, and he, he said, I had to look, but it turns out that's just wrong. That's just some, must've been some weird thing in training peaks. And so, you know, and, so number one, he, he had he yeah. didn't really have a relationship to the numbers. And number two, he what was happening, of course, is that it, you can, depending on how you've been riding in a period, in the so, you know, the software will extract the numbers from those rides and assign you a a value. But if you haven't been pushing, then you won't have a high value, if that makes sense. So, so when he sent me, he says, yep. here, here are the correct numbers. And there was zero difference. You know, it was like 10 watts difference over four years. <laughs> so so I, it was a good case in point for me that, number one, he, he's not totally connected to these numbers that he's getting from the software, not nearly as connected as a lot of other people would be. And number two, it is easy to get caught up if, if you are into the metrics, it's easy to get trapped in a kind of a, paper chase or a metrics chase where you would say, Oh, my numbers are down. Yeah. My FTP went down. Uh, well, why did it go down? Well, cause I haven't been really doing hard rides right now. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well then what the numbers you're developing are the numbers that the software is seeing just based on the kinds of training you're doing. And so this can create some, some, uh, I don't know, some anxiety for people. <laughs> If you're not a fan of of TSS and these metrics, and you, you talk about the the you know being very uh, aware of the sensations, the feelings you have for a, a particular workout, and and the the repercussions of that workout, what 
so for instance, going back to your daughter, what metrics do you use with her or how do you assess? Is it simply you take her word for it in terms of what she needs or you look at the numbers and you estimate the a workload of, of right. some kind in your own mind or are you using something that uh, we're not aware of? <laughs> I, I, I triangulate and, and I triangulate with, you know, the three, basically the three tools that we all have. And one is the external, which is pace power. You know, for her, I'm looking at pace. You know, what are her actual achieved paces for these different runs? And then I'm looking at her heart rate data because I'm getting all of that. And, and uh, you know, she's downloading her workouts. And then I'm listening to her and, listen, and reading the words that she uses to describe how she's feeling. So those are the three ways you have perceived exertion, which is that last one, whether you use a, a scale or whether you just listen or, or look at how they describe things. And you have the physiological data, which would be heart rate and blood lactate if you take that. And then you have pace power. Those are the three. And so I always triangulate. I never trust one of those exclusively. Um, because they each have strengths and weaknesses. So in a way, it's like a checks and balances system. You know, that's how government is supposed to work. It doesn't really work that way anymore. But in theory, you have, <laughs> you know, the founding fathers. They, yeah, but, but, but we do have a checks and balances system when it comes to training monitoring. And it works if you just... If you have respect for the the value of each of the three, what should I say, arms of the system, or you, you know par parts of the trinity, uh, but there is a tendency to get over exuberant about one or the other, depending on your particular uh, you know philosophy of training. In general, I think it's useful to look at all three at least reasonably regularly. I'm very much a gestaltist which is that the sum is greater than or the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Um, and what I see a lot in this current era with this, this huge data overload is riders get very obsessed with going after those targets, getting on Zwift and winning a race in February. That's a sign they're on form hitting that peak five minute power, getting that, that, uh, training peaks FTP higher than they've ever seen it. And they look for all these metrics to say, oh, I'm stronger than I've ever been. And I can't tell you many times I've seen riders do that. And then they have an extraordinarily disappointing season because they're looking at all the little parts, not looking at how it all fits together. And what I personally prefer as the gestaltist is to say, these are very powerful tools, but what we want to do is look at the overall training plan, build a training plan that has a direction, really focus on the purpose of it. And then you use all these metrics to see how you're progressing and it's not did you hit a peak five minute power it's more what's going on with heart rate what's going on with wattage what's going on with rp how does it all fit together to paint a picture of this athlete and quite often when uh, i see athletes have a fantastic season all through the base season all building up to that race season you don't ever see a peak number or something that you can you know a singular number you can point at and go wow you're stronger than you've ever been but they get into the races and suddenly it shows up. Yeah, 
Uh, and that's what I'm seeing. I see with myself, I see with my daughter, I see with these elite athletes we've studied is just this, uh, what should I say, this calm security in what they're doing. That, you know, they do not need that confirmation every day that they are, you know, and, and, it, and my daughter has struggled with it, but she's learned, you know, because she had that tendency to need confirmation through the training workouts, through the the numbers from a hard session that she was on form, but she has learned her lesson that, that, you know, it was too much eating the cake and not enough, you know, making the cake, uh, as we, as, as they say in Norway, but it's a bitter lesson. You, you know, you have to learn it. You have to learn that, that these little small victories end up at, building up to a big disappointment on race day because you've kind of burned yourself out. And you don't you're you you don't have a, a gear to go to on race day. I, I remember David Martin, who used to work with you know he was at the AIS Australian Institute of Sport, and he worked with the I think it was the Green Edge guys and and the track guys, and he 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 seemed to slowly convert from being a physiologist to being a psychologist. <laughs> and, and one of the things he said is that you know these top guys they were very careful how often they use their, you know, their top, their highest gear in a sense. They, you know, they, they wanted to know that there was another place for them to go on race day in terms of intensity. So they weren't going there too often, but they were doing the work and they were able to go there on race day. But if you're, if you're, you're racing the training, then you'll be, you won't be, able to hit the real peaks on race day i think that's a typical finding the, the analogy i always give my athletes is think of a piggy bank and what i tell them is when you go out and and hit zwift a zwift race really hard in january or you go and go after a strava segment or even when you jump into a race you're spending money and I say the purpose of training is to put money in the bank. So when you go out and do that smart ride and skip the Strava segment, or you get on Zwift and do proper intervals and skip the race, you're putting money in the bank. And look, it's fun to spend money. Every once in a while, you got to pull out a dollar and say, let's go have some fun because you, you do need some enjoyment. But Trevor's point, idea of having fun is cost $1. <laughs> 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 And a couple of elastics. <laughs> are you able to buy a beer for one dollar in Canada? Or no, <laughs> I do remember in college having one dollar long necks Tuesday night. I used to go to religiously. That's a whole different conversation. And I was not a good cyclist then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You but really revealed your age the, there, dude. Now that we, <laughs> yeah, I really have. <laughs> But now we've completely lost my analogy. The point here is what I tell athletes is it is the, the goal here is to get to the race season with a whole lot of money in the bank. Don't spend it all in the winter. And, and that brings up a question that I have in my mind, which is <clears throat> getting back to this uh, the, the sort of the current state of things or the present research and also so many of the questions that we've gotten from listeners have to do with this aerobic threshold point and knowing where it's at and how do I find that so that I can do those rides that aren't very stressful but over time are really 
helping me accumulate a, a solid foundation so that I can go hard on my really hard days. Uh, what what are you learning about how people can understand where that aerobic threshold point is if they can't get into a lab or what 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 are what more are you learning about that? And you're doing some research on this. Yeah, we're gearing up for some stuff. We're <laughs> I, I'm really excited because you know we years ago we built this room where we uh, set up these uh, ergometers of the day um, and. And now they're you know they're out of date, and we're gonna we're gonna reconfigure the room with the with the modern, uh, you know, like it, it, we're not sure which one it's gonna be yet, but it'll be probably either one of these Wahoo type fully self-contained Wahoo kicker or a Tax Neo fully self-contained. But we're gonna build up a room that uh, allows us to put these riders all in this environment and then they can, you know, we can organize a, a training session for them as a group on Zwift or whatever platform we want to use and get all the power, the heart rate and so forth. I'm, I'm looking at infrared cameras so that we can monitor their skin temperature, their cooling, you know, are we controlling for that? So all of this is part of a plan for me to be able to make it more convenient and comfortable to study the long sessions, to study the 80%, you know, the, all that training or, or sessions that are representative for that, you know, very large majority of total training volume that should be under the first lactate turn point, you know, that green zone training that we talk about. And, and, and then again, that's one of the things I want to you know, look at is what, what markers can we use that are not dependent upon laboratory equipment to help, help people uh, of all abilities correctly identify and stay in that low intensity zone when they want to be there. And, you know, one of the tools that I'm trying to look at more precisely is is this relationship between heart rate which is the internal load or a measure of the internal load and power which is that external load it could be also pace and I, you know I, I've been working with a fellow and we've, we've developed software to more uh, precisely look at this kind of different ways of looking at it or of calibrating cardiac drift or decoupling as it's called um, and, and quantifying it for the you know what we generally see is that if you're in the green zone you don't have decoupling if you're reasonably fit and you're you know and, and then you've got to be ventilating and, and drinking but if you're taking care of your body with the normal you know with a, a good fan and you're drinking then a well-trained athlete will show essentially zero decoupling during a low intensity session. Even I now can hit three hours at 210 watts with no decoupling, you know, and when I get ride files in from the top guys, it's more like six hours, you know, you went before your flu, that's where you are. Let me tell you on Saturday, whole lot of decoupling. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, it, it, but that's a very good example. It shows that this is 
that is an adaptation and it can be lost and it can be gained is this durability component and it is as you point out it's extremely important it's part of what lays the foundation for those Zwift wins or real or wins, you know, on the road or whatever. So we're working on setting up uh, tools for quantifying that, but also for collecting the data uh, where we want to use a combination of lab and what should I call it? Crowdfund crowdsourced data. And, and I've started, you know, I, I have some great, fantastic Twitter followers that, that, you know, if I ask for strange stuff like, uh, hey, I need a, uh, you know, a 3015 interval session file from you, they, they, they bring it, they've got it, you know, <laughs> and then I'm looking at these and trying to use this pilot work to develop some tools and develop some research protocols for how we're going to attack this. But the big, the big goal for me in the coming years is to do a better job of understanding what happens below and just above that first threshold and to help athletes more correctly identify where they are. And, and then, and, and with the goal of then uh, properly executing their intensity distribution goals. So we've been, we've been talking about the present state of, of this huge ability to have a lot of numbers. Um, what you're talking about to me is, is a lot of what the future is about because going back to all this data we have, I find the data is, is very biased towards the top end simply because that stuff is easier to figure out. We've talked about figuring out your, your MLSS or your, your lactate threshold. And there's certainly arguments to be had over the, do you do 20 minute times a multiplier? And there was a recent study that just came out that basically said, no, that doesn't work. Certainly going out and doing a one hour time trial, you're going to get a pretty decent number. But when you get to that lower end, that aerobic threshold, that zone one, we get that email all the time. I'm sure you get that question probably five times a day. How do you figure that out without going into the lab? And it's really hard. And I've, you, you've been showing me this tool, and it's this fantastic tool to actually be able to see, is there cardiac drift? Is there decoupling going on when I ride? And, and it's, it's more complex finding those numbers. It's not go out and do a five-hour ride as hard as you can. It's going out and doing a, a three- to five-hour ride at the right intensity so you don't see a lot of cardiac drift, which is tough. And to me, that's a lot of the future is, is rounding out and developing that lower end. Yeah, I had a, an example. You know, I use myself as a guinea pig sometimes. Last <laughs> Sunday, I did a three-hour ride with a group, you know, a Zwift group. And they had a good leader and everything stayed as advertised. So my average power was, it was upper end of my green zone, but it was 212 watts and, and I had no drift. I mean, I was, I was where I wanted to be. Um, so I was really pleased because I had stretched my kind of durability out to the three hour mark. So then, yes, let's see, what's today? Yeah, yesterday I did the same group ride three hours same group i'm not going to say who it was but anyway and this time the first hour was exactly at the same power two hour two two twelve exactly the same no decoupling but then things got messy and partly because 
some people in the group apparently started pushing and partly because I was so enthralled with this audio book that I was listening to that I wasn't paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) So so I'm listening to this wonderful book called The Boys in the Boat. It's about uh, some rowers that won in the 1936 Olympics. And anyway, then I suddenly look up and say, oh, crap, you know, (laughs) I I fell off the back of the te- you know of the group and so then you're stuck with this all right what do i do do i motor hard and try to catch the group or do i just give up or what and so after a couple of little surges i said no i'm just gonna chill you know i'm, I'm gonna stick to my plan but then i thought well this ride's kind of messed up so i think i'm gonna go up just above what i think is my threshold my first turn point so i went up to 235 watts so at 212, three hours, no decoupling. 235, 236 watts for 30 minutes, nice, clear drift. You know, so, and I've seen this consistently, that I can identify very clearly where my first turn point is based on how my heart rate responds, based on decoupling versus no decoupling, you know, but I've developed a tool to, you know, and I've kind of zeroed in. I've geared, I've, I, I know what to look for. Uh, and I get that not everyone has that tool and, and is used to that. So what I would do for most people, I would say, look, start with this basic rule that if you are in at low intensity below your first turn point, you should be able to talk as you go. And even if you're sitting on the bike all alone in your living room or in your pain cave like me, speak some sentences aloud along the way. Pick, pick a favorite quote from Abraham Lincoln or, you know, whoever, uh, <laughs> and just say it out loud and say, hey, can I say this, you know, without being totally out of breath? Am I, am I comfortable? If you can, that's a good sign. And that is a poor man's check. But it turns out to be physiologically founded in the fact that, you know, if you are beginning to hyperventilate, then, of course, it's going to have an impact on how you how you're able to speak. So there is a you know, it's not just it's not silly. There is some basis for this. And it's been shown to be true in the laboratory that if you can speak sentences, then in all probability, you're below your first turn point. Now, one quick addendum. If you can recite Shakespeare, you're probably going a little too easy. <laughs> that may be, well, then you need to play chess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you need to, yeah, you, you need, but there's lots, you can find the right sentences. But I've actually done this with myself recently. I've started just checking and saying, is this true? Am I actually at talking pace? Then there's this other hack that some people use, which is just close your mouth uh, and breathe through your nose. And and if if your sinuses are clear, then that can also be a decent uh, check on green zone intensity, you know, first, first below first turn point intensity. Um, Those are, they're grow, they're rough, they're crude, but that's a good starting point. And then, you know, if you want to start getting into the details of how close you want to push that, that, you know, up to that turn point, then probably you start, you have to use decoupling, you know, cardiac drift. Yeah. 
And so, by the way, I owe you an apology. I never told you about this, but so remember a couple of weeks ago, I, I wanted to test your tool and I had about three hours on the trainer and I said, you know, if I just ride at, at, at what I know is below my aerobic threshold, I'm not going to see any cardiac drift and asked you, asked you for a suggestion. And you said, oh, we'll ride 25 minutes right around what you think your aerobic threshold is and then do a five minute uh, effort right at your anaerobic threshold and just keep repeating that for about three hours. And we'll definitely get some cardiac drift because we just wanted to, I wanted to put it into your tool and I wanted to see the cardiac drift. So I got on my trainer and I was programming the workout into Zwift while I was pedaling. So I just quickly titled it Siler Test and did the workout. And on Zwift, as soon as I'm done with the workout, it immediately uploads to Strava. You wouldn't believe the number of comments I got of people going, what's this test? I haven't seen that before. What's Dr. Siler trying to do? And I thought he was into the one hour test. This is inconsistent. What are you guys doing? Like I got angry tech. I got all these. So I, I immediately went into Strava and I retitled the ride because I'm like, oh God, I just gave everybody the wrong idea here. We're just playing around. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah. But, but what we were talking about and, and, and you're onto this other issue, which is they, they go together, but I've, we've used the term in our conversations, durability, low intensity durability, which is just this ability to ex extend those sessions and uh, below the turn point without decoupling. And then we, we've talked about high intensity repeatability and you've used that term and I've embraced it. And, and so I've been trying to figure out, all right, how do I develop a kind of a standard protocol for testing and quantifying repeatability. So that's where that's where this comes in as we said, well, what if we do kind of like five or six minute hard pushes interspersed with 25 minute zone one and, you know, just keep doing this uh, for, for several hours and then see how the responses look. But we're not, you know, we haven't finished it out, but, but I appreciate you helping me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> not trying to confuse the whole world. I, no, that was completely my fault. And I apologize about that. I was waiting for you to email me going, I just got a whole bunch of tweets <laughs> and emails. What's going on? <laughs> no, I have to say, I, I, uh, I'm just, I was such a reluctant tweeter you know, back in the day when I started a few years ago on Twitter, but I find I have this Twitter group that are, they're just fantastic because they are, you know, really interested in the training process. And, and, you know, it's kind of like a bartering system. I try to share what I know. And then when I need help, help is there to find, you know, if I yeah. need workouts or if I need people to even do certain workouts, they say, okay, I'll do it tomorrow. You know, what do you want me to do? <laughs> so they're great. So I, I, I have nothing but good things to say about the people that uh, helped me out with some of this stuff uh, in the form of blood, sweat, and tears and data. It's a, it's a good tool. And I, think, and I think it's part of what we're talking about moving into the future is, for me, the future of doing this kind of sports science is even tighter integration with practice and this interplay between uh, some big data sources, you know, fan Training Peaks is fantastic. They're collecting over 10 million workouts a month. Um, you know, there's other other sources. Uh, athletes are, are are digitally connected, and so that data is interesting. It's useful, 
but it can also be confusing. So we just have to use it correctly, use it judiciously and in, in helping us to understand and inform the training process. And I think that's, that's an exciting, it's an exciting time to be working as a sports scientist. Um, but I would just, I would just say or caution people and say that I have not been able to see any, what should I say, correlation between the degree of technical complication that people use in their training monitoring process and their success. In fact, I would almost, almost hypothesize the opposite, that when I talk, you know, some of the most successful people that I've talked about, you know, successful athletes have a remarkably uh, relaxed relationship with all those numbers. So I, I maybe that's a cautionary tale for us to, to think about as we move into, the, you know, we keep moving down this pathway towards just more and more data. The way I think of it is every top pro that I talk to is remarkably connected with their own physiology, with their own bodies. They know when they're having a good day. They know when they have a bad day. They know when something's off. They know the intensity to ride at. They can do it by feel. And well, I think there are a lot of great advantages to these numbers, especially retrospectively looking at, at your progress. The numbers have that danger of getting you disconnected from your body. You stop listening to yourself and start listening to the numbers. Uh, I totally agree, and I think you're so right. I mean, I, in fact, some of my most happy moments as a coach with my daughter is just recognizing, uh, experiencing her growth in that connection. You know that she is able to um, describe for me things she's feeling with her body and how she's responding in in a in a very uh, reflected way, a very informed way. And so I think, well, that's boy, this bodes well for your future. You know, you're you're with this. You know how carefully you're listening to your body this is going to be you're going to be an athlete that can experience progress for a long time not because of me but because of of you because you are embracing this you know your self-knowledge of understanding how you respond to training and and pretty soon i will be uh i won't be necessary you know and that's kind of should in a way that should be the goal of the coach but it doesn't happen unless the athlete has those characteristics that you're describing. I tell every athlete who hires me, my goal as a coach is to get you to the point where you don't need me anymore, but you keep paying me because you like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think and it's funny. That sounds funny and you're joking a bit. But even if you talk to elite athletes, they will they'll kind of say the same thing is, hey, I kind of. You know, I'm pretty comfortable with how I train, but I really like having the conversation with my coach that, you know, continuing to get that confirmation that, that we're on the right track and we agree. So that seems to be the kind of maturation process that happens, uh, at least particularly I see it here in Norway because it's kind of the philosophical model is that the athlete should eventually become, you know, self-sufficient, but they still choose to have support around them when they need it. So it's, it's, I, I love, I love seeing that develop, you know, that where the athlete just becomes uh, self-reliant, but at the same time, 
appreciates the good conversations with the coach. Trevor only charges a dollar an hour. Because <laughs> yeah. I only- get my long necks out of it, so I'm happy. Yeah, exactly. That's, to my point, exactly. So he he comes cheap, and he you know he can tell a good story. So. But I should say, I also know yes, you guys well enough that I'm coming to Boulder. I'm glad you brought that up because, yes, for our listeners, Dr. Seiler has been gracious enough to say he will come out to Boulder. This is end of April, beginning of May, uh, and he's going to give a presentation here. So we will have more information about that as we, we get the details worked out. Didn't take a whole lot of arm twisting. I, I'm looking forward to it. I think all three of us are some weird dudes, but we all like to help people figure this stuff out. So that's why I like hanging around you guys. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, and it's nice to hear you say that. And uh, we will we will have some fun that week. And, and, and you know what? I, I'm going to bring some extra dollars you know, just $1 bills so that you can. Yes. Are we going out for long necks? Yeah, so that you can have a lot of fun. <laughs> That's $3 will do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Seiler, it's been a pleasure as always. You've been on the show many times before, so you know that we like to close out with uh, what we're calling fast takes. I'm just throwing that in. We can, I don't know if we're t- calling that actually. One minute. You just made that up on the no. fly or what? Yeah, I just made that up. Well, it's fast talk, so we're giving fast takes. Anyways. I, I, um, I get it. I get it. Yeah. So, uh, so you've been here many times before. You know that we like to close out with our one-minute take-homes. And so take everything that – we're talking about the past, the present, the future of exercise physiology – can you condense that into one minute and give everybody out there just one last piece of wisdom? Look, technology is going to come and go. Technologies are going to keep developing, but our human genetics, our human physiology is moving at a snail's pace compared to the physio- <laughs> compared to the technology. So, you know, the training process is going to be the same in 5 and 10 years as it has been for 50 years or a thousand years so don't get so wrapped up in the technology training the human body is still pretty much you know it's it's a pretty straightforward process of getting out there doing the work and occasionally doing the work a bit hard so i I guess my take-home message is that is don't lose the forest for the trees don't let these numbers confuse you to death good training comes from listening to your body and using your body regularly you know doing the work trevor what do you think taking all this and trying to summarize it is that this is the hardest one minute i've ever had to do so i think i'm just going to say two things one is you know obviously we have hidden this less and less that all three of us here have this very strong bias towards the polarized training approach but you notice when we started at the, the beginning of this conversation, we did talk about sweet spot. We did talk about the high intensity approach more than any of the others. I would say too much high intensity. That's just been shown to be wrong. But we never said, boy, sweet spot's a stupid idea, even though it's not the approach that, that we believe in. We even just said, look, here's the, the science to back it. So what I am going to say is, well, we certainly have a bias. There are different approaches. There, I've seen success with different approaches. But I think the one thing that commonality or universal that I think we really got at with the rest of this show is that whatever approach you take, you need to be purposeful with it. 
You need to look at the big picture. You need to see how it all fits together. And while the numbers can be wonderful, and certainly as a coach, really help you to see what's going on with your athlete, they have that danger of getting you away from the purpose. They have that danger of getting you away from being connected with your own body. So always put that purpose and that connection with what's going on with you first. Um, and don't, don't be the dog going squirrel and <laughs> looking in every direction. Chris? Well, I'll, I'll just add some anecdotal points here rather than trying to summarize or get too, too lofty. I really like to keep in mind that um, there are certain things about the way professional athletes train that y you'd be you'd be silly to try to mimic if you're just an amateur athlete. But there are other things that they've learned because they know their bodies extremely well that are greatly beneficial to to mimic, and that is this approach to training, taking this holistic view of their their career, breaking that down into years and months, um, but, but always keeping in mind the big picture, which is your body can only do so much of this really high intensity, very stressful work and, and keep, keep it going. You do need to, uh, you do need to rest as hard, if not harder than you do your intervals at, if that makes sense. And the proportion of which you can do them each at is, is polarized and it's skewed and biased towards one direction. So, you know, going, being pro doesn't necessarily mean going out and thrashing yourself with the types of hard workouts that these, these pro athletes do. But in the big picture, it means skewing your training in one direction versus the other. I think that that is the, the science is becoming, uh, ever clearer on that. The other thing that I would say is, you know, the, the world's greatest athletes tend to have big egos, but at the same time, they know, like we were saying in this episode, they know when to go hard and they know when to check that ego. They, they, you can't always do that. So when the e-bike passes you on the road and you're tempted to try to chase them down, if it's not the day to go hard, check your ego and say, ah, I'm just going to let that person go sliding by. If you're on Zwift and it's your day to do a long, slow ride and, and you see the group going up the road in this virtual reality crazy thing that I'm un totally unfamiliar <laughs> with, <laughs> then just let them go up the road. Don't, don't go chasing them down every, at every opportunity. So maybe I'm getting a little long winded here, but those are the two things that really stand out to me. You know, I was on Zwift one day and I'm doing this four hour ride. And it turns out that one of the guys in the group that I'm riding with is, uh, Cadell Evans. Mm. Tour de France winner, now 42, retired, mm. but obviously still fit. And what you were just saying, Chris, reminded me because the guy is just so down to earth, you know, so I would say humble, even though even now his fitness is just beyond anything that, at least in that group, that we could, could deal with. But, but he was magnanimous. You know, he had nothing he needed to prove on that ride. And I, I think that's a, a really fascinating thought is, look, if you're that good, 
you know, just why don't you figure out a way to show how magnanimous you can be that day, how you can wave to the woman that goes by on the e-bike, you know, and, and, and say, good job. You know, I think if we can do a bit more of that and, and use and say, Hey, you know what? I was able to be, I was able to really cheer on others on my easy day. Let that, and, and I'm saying this to myself, but let that be one of the rewards uh, of the process. That was episode 100 of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or call 719-800-2112 and leave us a voicemail. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. Check us out on all social media channels. We are at Real Fast Labs. For Dr. Steven Seiler and Coach Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Thanks.